Welcome to Word in the Streets, a weekly podcast from Barclays where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, talks with Judith McKenzie, Head of Downing Fund Managers, about how she and her team decide on which companies to invest in, as well as the opportunities and pitfalls of investing in the UK market. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, we've got another special guest today. You will have heard, Judith, thank you very much for coming along and gracing our podcast. Pleasure. Well, so the, Judith, it's the start of a week with the sort of a series of back to school podcasts, really, where we're looking to bring in some of the experts that we bring to bear on your behalf to sort of uh, get their views on various aspects of the investment, uh, the investment world. Judith, maybe you could start by explaining a little bit about uh, what Downing specialises in. Indeed. So Downing's been around for over 35 years now, and we're owned by our partners, which is quite a good thing, we like anyway. And we specialise in investing in UK companies, really. And that's everything from a renewables company, so wind farm or solar farm, through asset backing as well. Uh, so we invest in properties. But the bit of the business that I look after is the equity side of the business, Downing Fund Managers. Interesting, interesting. And so, well, and do you have a specific area of expertise within that equity segment? Are the bits of that you particularly enjoy, perhaps? Yeah. Well, if you cut me in half, I've been a fund manager for twenty six years, and I've been investing in smaller companies. So I started Downing Fund Managers about thirteen years ago, mm-hmm. and we've now actually got quite a range of funds under management. We've got everything from UK equities through to global, through to European equities as well. But there's one thing that is quite in common with all of those funds: they're quite focused, and the fund managers are all pretty passionate about what they do and it's easy to use the word boutique but we really are a true boutique right. so we've got funds that are relative in size to to the mandates that we have and that means that the managers can do what they want mm-hmm. and they're unconstrained by perhaps working in a larger company they all own part of their own fund and they all own quite a significant chunk of their own funds in terms of the equity that yes. they invest aligned absolutely aligned yes. That's good. That's good. And so just sort of giving the listeners an idea about sort of, you know, workloads, how many would each fund manager expect to look at a certain number of companies or research a particular number of companies? What would the patch look like? And what does an average day look like? If there oh, there's no average day, there's as no you can probably yes, recognise, yes. um, especially more recently. So uh, there's no there's no real number that I can pin down on. But very roughly, we're, we're bottom up fund managers. Right. So we tend to focus on portfolios of between 25 and 40 stocks. Mm -hmm. And our heritage is very much in that smaller company space. And small companies, aim companies, are very much like errant children. They go off and do things uh, that you don't really necessarily want them to do. So you've got to have the time to do the due diligence in the first place, but also have the time to do the monitoring. Mm -hmm. So we are very focused in the the portfolios that we manage. That's interesting. And do you think smaller companies tend to take more research than a larger company? You know, we've talked about other, you know, the Microsofts and the NVIDIAs, again, the recommendations here. But, you know, the smaller companies, but, you know, some of the story seems to be about in terms of investing that some of these smaller companies, they're less in the news, they're less covered by other analysts, perhaps. And that might mean there's some bits of information that aren't incorporated into prices. Therefore, there's a bit more opportunity for the active investor. But does that mean a higher sort of, you know, threshold for due diligence to get comfortable? Yeah, yeah it is. It is. So to put it into context, the universe that uh, we look at in terms of smaller companies, and especially in the funds that I manage, 
there's 0.6 of an analyst covering those companies. And I don't know what 0.6 of an analyst looks like, but it means that there's not a lot of information out there. Yes. And, and therefore, we do have to be more diligent, I think, than a fund manager further up the market cap curve. And sometimes our diligence process could take eight, 10 months. Yeah, Some cases, it's been years before we've made an investment, just waiting for the stars to align with something. But that's also the opportunity because a lot of these companies you would never necessarily have heard of, but actually you probably would have come across in your daily lives. Yeah. Companies like in the high street, like the works, Ramsdens, for instance. So, you know, these companies have got a great UK profile and mm. international profile, international earnings. 60% of our portfolios have got earnings that are overseas. So the perception that a UK smaller company is a widget manufacturer in Sheffield is is really a bit of a misnomer and that really is the opportunity that we've got in our in our field. Yeah, it's interesting when I mean, we're regularly saying to our clients that it's actually quite difficult to buy the UK economy on the UK stock market, small or large, because all of these companies or many of these companies get their revenues from all over the place. And I guess, you know, one of your uh, key interests is about, you know, advocacy, how to influence companies. And again, that must be quite interesting in the smaller companies space because you wield quite a lot of clout with some of these kind of owners and other things. But I think, you know, one of the interesting things for us and watching over the course of the pandemic, and this is something we've spoken about a lot, was uh, it was quite early on, wasn't it? And I was thinking there was a group of the largest, the world's largest asset managers who urged the pharmaceutical stocks on their books to not compete, but collaborate to find a vaccine. Now, that's relatively harmless. Obviously, most people can agree on it. But one of the things that we often think about is that in a world where we don't be able to don't really seem to be able to agree on very much, how can we find agreed upon objectives of which to get are uh, the companies that we own to do what we collectively, if there is such a thing, want? Um, long question. But a, what the, are your thoughts? It's, yes. a, it's a bit of a hobby horse for me, so you're probably yes. going to get a nice long answer to your, <laughs> uh, your long question. Governance is something that is really important to us. Yes. And yes, we, we pay a lot of attention to the E and the S elements of ESG, but governance really in smaller companies is a top priority. And we, we actually pride ourselves in taking stakes in companies and being very proactive in the way that we manage uh, those positions. We are use the word proactive as opposed to activist. Mm -hmm. We do a lot behind the scenes. And it's, it's really interesting when you go and see a company and you find a good CEO and CFO and you're really going through a, a good diligence process with the company. And very often you get to the conversation about how the board works. And it's amazing how many times the CEO or the CFO starts to look at their feet when you ask about the effectiveness <laughs> of the board. Yes. And actually, you know, that that for us is a great opportunity because we know that we've probably got some great contacts that we can introduce to that company and dare I say it, get the older gentleman who might have been chief exec of a PLC and is now a non-exec and probably would spend or should be spending more time on the golf course, we can move those people on and get a little bit on more. Handicap a little bit more. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, in the kindest possible way. Yes. Um, and, and actually, if you can do that, it's amazing how a young company or a, a small company with a, a better board round about them can really start to thrive. Mm -hmm. So that's something of the 18 positions that we have in one of our investment trusts. I would say there's been over 22 board changes in those companies. So it just gives you an idea as to how engaged and proactive we are. But in, in a positive way, not, not not knocking people over the head with it, but actually just hopefully helping. You talked about some of the means of it. What other areas? I mean, beyond the, the governance areas, which I, I think, again, can be pretty well agreed upon. 
Are there other areas you feel comfortable getting into in terms of influencing corporate behaviour? And yeah. to what extent, what, how sort of proactive can you be on this? Like, I think the important point to make as well is that all of our fund managers vote on every single resolution in their companies. We don't mm. outsource to a third party. That I think it's really important that the fund manager makes that decision yeah. and is engaged in the, the decision as well. It leads to accountability and it also actually means that if they're putting their vote on the form, then actually they're they're probably going to think about what they might want to change a little bit more as well. Yeah. So we we're quite active in in terms of remuneration and helping to assist and consult on long term incentive plans. Yeah, interesting. And that again brings alignment back in with the shareholder. Other aspects would be on preemption rights, how many shares the company might be able to issue without getting shareholder approvals. We also are quite proactive when it comes to suggesting mergers and acquisitions. So mm-hmm. that's both in terms of companies perhaps looking to buy some of their peers, but we've also facilitated or helped facilitate a couple of trade exits through the, the course of the last sort of 12, 18 months or so. How interesting. How interesting. And what about sort of success stories or some failures? Some illustrative examples. I guess we can't, you know, be too and again, any names, corporate names that uh, that Judith mentions here, they're not recommendations. But yes, anything anything sort of, you know, Cautionary tales or maybe Yeah, boasts. yeah. Well, let, let me talk about, because fund managers don't like talking about negatives, do they? So let, no. let me talk about that first yes. um, in general terms without naming any names. Um, I think where we have perhaps got it wrong in the past is not necessarily the work that we're doing on a spreadsheet before we make the investment. It tends to be people related and integrity related as well. So, you know, how on earth do you do a due diligence on a management team and, you know, you can't put them through psychometric testing? Well, you can, but it doesn't really give you the right answer. Um, (laughs) They might. They might resist. Exactly, they might resist. (laughs) It really is about spending as much time with management as you can, reading every set of reporting accounts, every word that they say in the reporting accounts and making sure that they're true to what they say in the reporting accounts and really cross-checking as you go. Yeah. So that really is the most important thing. Where it goes wrong is when a management team start doing things that they didn't say they were going to do. Yeah. And that integrity and the trust element then disappears. And in smaller companies, you very often find that the element of stock that's held by the management team is quite high. They tend to be quite owner-managed type businesses. And that's a great positive because you get that alignment, but it's also not so positive. You end up in a situation where there's a chief exec that has maybe gone a little bit native and they've got quite a decent stake. So that's some of the challenges that we've had to deal with in the you past. Some behavioural problems in that. Yeah. Did and you find, just as an addition to that, did, did you find that your process was, and we've spoken to a lot of fund managers about this, but obviously the pandemic and the virtual world, do you find these things much easier physically to be in the room and read body language? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So I, in our in our microcap and small cap mandates, I said I would never, ever invest in a company unless I'd been on site with the management team and seen the whites of their eyes for, for you know, a number of days. And we, we obviously couldn't be doing yes. that uh, in the same way. It's not actually affected performance, which is quite interesting. Yes. I think the meetings that we had through the pandemic, what we learned about those meetings is we... It was quite perfunctory. There was no nice, I'm not saying there weren't any niceties, but it was really functional. And I think we've adapted that into our process a little bit more instead of maybe going out for a nice supper or whatever Mm -hmm. with the management team at the end of a diligence day. We now actually just want to get 
yeah. straight to the nothing. I don't want to be friends. Uh, yeah, we don't <laughs> need to be friends. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think that's that's probably taught me a few things through the process. Interesting. And I guess, you know, talking about small caps, you know, that a lot of the market hype that people are talking about and people are worrying about bubbles in the US kind of you know, US tech technology sector in particular, people getting perhaps a bit overexcited about generative AI, we shall see. But you're, a, you're at the other end of the scale, I guess. So what, what are the sort of opportunities, sectors, you know, the interesting bits that you're really seeing that feel a little bit under-hyped? Oh, we've got a lot that's under-hyped yeah, in say. the UK smaller <laughs> yeah. recovery market. Yes. And, and we're value investors. So, you know, we've yes. been at the tail end of pretty much any momentum type performance that you've yeah. seen over the last 10 years, but we're not gonna change what we do. So what we're looking for, not so much in terms of sectors, we're looking for companies that don't necessarily need market growth. Mm-hmm. So they've got their own levers to pull. And that yeah. might be increasing efficiencies, a good return on invested capital. So maybe revamping a plant and getting extra efficiencies, getting extra margin pushed through it. We're looking for companies that are quite unique so they can pass on prices, which is very important as well in this inflationary environment. What we don't like, we don't like debt, we like net cash in the balance sheet. And yeah, we, we like management teams with their own skin in the game as well. So we know what we're looking for. And actually the universe that we have is is wide enough for us to be able to to really cherry pick. And we're we're not paying stupid prices for it either. Which is very helpful over time, one hopes. And just a final question, what what's top of the worry list at the moment? What do you really worry about that you maybe can or can't control? Well, I don't tend to worry about stuff that we can control. That's, yes. that's our day job. That's yes. what fund managers are, are supposed to do. One of my colleagues, Simon Evan Cook, who runs our multi-manager side of the business, he says that fund managers need to be pessimistically optimistic. <laughs> so I think that's what I, I probably have that that treat in, in droves. So yeah, I, I kind of worry about some of the macro, but that's what, what everybody's facing. Yeah, so um, it really is about controlling what we can do. I think one of the, the disappointing things at the moment is seeing that the UK market is being de-equitized a little bit. Yeah. And if you look at the small cap and the fledged, FTSE fledgling space, there, the number of companies there has actually decreased over the last five years by about 45 to 55%. And that's quite depressing. The yeah. companies on AIM, the smaller end of the market, they're now down to the lowest level that they have been for mm. 20 odd years. I've seen 16 companies leave the market this year, either through trade buying or private equity, uh, which shows that the market is cheap. So for me, the bit that I can maybe help influence as a fund manager is to create more buyers than sellers in the UK, smaller companies. And that is to, to actually show how great quality and what good opportunities there are in this mm. space. Interesting. Well, this podcast hopefully is part of that Absolutely. story. Part of that story. Judith, thank you very much indeed. That was brilliant. There's nothing else from me. Thank you for listening, all of you listeners. And please get in touch with any further questions. And we'll try and get in touch with Judith to get you answers. Otherwise, you will hear us very shortly. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.